Hello and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Linda Greenhouse, who was the New York Times Supreme Court correspondent from 1978 to 2007, winning a Pulitzer Prize and other major journalism awards for her coverage of the court. Linda currently writes a twice-monthly op-ed for The Times as a contributing columnist and has taught at Yale Law School since 2009. She is the author of five books, most recently a memoir, Just a Journalist, which was published in 2017. In Linda's extracurricular life, she is, among other things, president of the American Philosophical Society. Linda, we're so grateful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ben. So, first off, we're all deeply saddened by the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I read the obituary you wrote for Justice Ginsburg in the New York Times, and wow, it was a beautifully written and and very heartfelt piece. She was really just a very remarkable woman. With that in mind, could you talk about what Justice Ginsburg's legacy will be, both on the court and, as you described her in her obituary, as a feminist icon? Yeah, so, you know, she's one of the relatively few people who if they had never gone on the Supreme Court, would have been a figure of history. You can't say that about pretty much anybody else on the court today. I don't want to insult anybody there. But uh, she made a huge mark as a white young litigator uh, who, under, under whose advocacy the Supreme Court, the nine men of the Supreme Court, there never had been a woman on the court at the time she was appearing before them, uh, created a jurisprudence of sex equality. Uh, you know, people maybe don't realize that the famous progressive court under Earl Warren, uh, the court that brought us Brown against Board of Education, that have lots of important decisions involving the rights of criminal defendants, never once interpreted the equal protection guarantee of the 14th Amendment as having anything to do with women. So she came along to change that. And she did it in a brilliantly strategic way uh, with a long vision that set out her course. And she, as I say, she would be, she would be known for that um, even if she never had become a federal judge of any kind. She was really legendary. Um, you know, you worked in close proximity to Justice Ginsburg for almost 15 years, and for a time while she was the only woman on the court. I mean, on a personal level, what was she like and what did she mean to you? Yes, I, d- I did know her for a long time. I, I met her before she came on the court, actually. And she was an exceedingly generous person with her time, with her interest in other people. I mean, since her death, there have been lots of anecdotes from her law clerks and people who intersected with her mm-hmm. about things she had done for them. I mean, I, she sent me a note, um, you know, six weeks before she died, dated August 3rd. I had sent her, somebody had sent me an image of a yard sign in front of a house in a D.C. neighborhood 
that said, um, RPG works five miles from here. Keep her safe. Wear your mask. And it was thought <laughs> she might get a kick out of it. Um, and I sent it to her. And I didn't expect an answer. I mean, I knew she had had a recurrence of cancer. I suspected, you know, it was a hard time. And she answered a very generous note and said uh, that her adult children were now with her to help her, as she put it, meet the current challenge. And that said a lot to me, both that she would bother to answer me and also, you know, if somebody's adult children, neither of whom lived in Washington, come to move in with you and help take care, that's a, that indicates to me that she was perhaps sicker than the public knew. And uh, it, yeah. it upset me quite a lot, actually. No, I can imagine. I was devastated when I heard the news last week, and so... Having that sense of foreboding, I guess, just must have been very upsetting. Um, well, to, to zoom back briefly, the title of the lecture you delivered earlier today at the Rockefeller Center was, quote, aren't we all in this together? How the Supreme Court is helping to pull us apart. Could you explain what you meant by this and what has caused you to worry about the Supreme Court recently? Yeah, what I tried to pull together in the lecture was a series of decisions uh, by which the court has enabled Americans to opt out, create a sort of opt-out culture, to not have to follow the law if their conscience tells them otherwise, no matter the impact of this opting out on innocent third parties who have... Mm -hmm legal rights. So, for instance, uh, in a decision this summer, a case called Little Sisters of the Poor, which evoked from Justice Ginsburg her very last published dissenting opinion, the court upheld a Trump administration rule, uh, an interpretation of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that mm -hmm. says that any employer who has a religious or just a general moral objection to uh, underwriting or having really anything to do with providing birth control coverage for their employees under the employee health plan, they can just put their hand up and opt out. And, you know, contraception coverage without a copay is part of the Affordable Care Act. It's a part of female employees' entitlement if they work for an organization that provides an employee health plan. And the court mm -hmm. said, basically, no standards, no threshold for what kind of objection, for what the employer has to show, just, I don't feel like doing this. And that was really the icing on the cake, I should say. I mean, I was working on these themes for, for quite a long time, starting yeah. with uh, a labor case that enables now a decision that came down about two years ago that enables uh, members of a public employee union who don't want to support the union to just say, I don't want to support the union. I don't want to pay a dime. 
So they get all the benefits that the union provides. They get the collective bargaining, they get the, uh, you know, dispute resolution structures and everything, because under federal labor law, unions have to represent everybody, even people that don't like them, don't want to join them. Uh, You know, the union doesn't negotiate. I'll give our members salary X and I'll give our non-members salary X minus 10%. Everybody gets the same. And so the notion that, you know, I don't like the union, I want to take the benefits, but I don't want to have to pay a dime. That's part of the opt-out culture. And the court reached that decision by interpreting the First Amendment to say that having to pay anything to the union violates the First Amendment freedom of speech and association. So, you know, I tried to put all these together in the in the talk um, to say what my concerns are. And because these cases on the surface don't have anything to do with one another, you have labor law, you have health care law. Uh, you know, I just tried to look below the surface and see what theme connects them. And it's it's the theme of if you don't like it, just put your hand up and say, I'm not doing it. <laughs> well, that's very encouraging. Um, <laughs> you've worked right. on the court since the late 70s. So, you know, I have to ask, how is it that we got to this very individually oriented society and kind of individually oriented interpretation of the law? Well, I mean, two things kind of coincide. One is a libertarian strain that's running through our politics. And the labor case was a sort of ultimately libertarian case. And then we've had a great privileging of religion in our politics. Um, And so the the opting out of contraception is basically um, a religion case, uh, putting religion ahead of the legal rights of people whose religion is not implicated. so these two, these two strands, the kind of ideology of our politics and the role of religion in our politics have, I think, coincided to, uh, to bring us to where we are today with these kinds of cases. Right. And yeah, it's interesting to see how pervasive this uh, individually oriented mentality is. I remember you talking earlier about your struggles with restaurant patrons refusing to wear masks. And it's interesting to see that same kind of mentality operating uh, in the highest court of the land, I guess, with these religious decisions. Well, that's right. I mean, I, you know, felt a little strange about starting my talk with an anecdote about um, being on a ferry this summer that posted a mask requirement. And I went up to somebody that wasn't wearing a mask and said, excuse me, you're supposed to be wearing a mask. And she looked at me and said, I hear you. You know, I mean, that's what we're dealing with. So, you know, it sounds like not really the most profound thing to say, but it really touches on something quite profound. I mean, don't we have a sense of mutual obligation in the current crisis? Uh, Evidently not in many quarters, including some very high quarters. No, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think you've diagnosed the problem very effectively. Um, so to pivot a bit more overtly, I guess, to politics, um, within hours of Justice Ginsburg's passing, Mitch McConnell indicated that he would try to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat on the court before the election, which is 
disappointing given his treatment of Merrick Garland in 2016, but frankly, it's not at all surprising to anyone, I think. Um, and I'm also aware that Senator Romney indicated that he would vote for a nominee uh, before the election, which is a boon to the GOP's chances of getting a nominee through the Senate. So uh, re- regardless of that minutia, how will this nomination process look over the next month or two? And how will the fight that's about to erupt around Justice Ginsburg's now empty seat impact the public's perception of the court and the court's overall independence? Well, there's probably no doubt about how it's going to play out ultimately, because, um, you know, Mitch McConnell has enough Republican senators that are just going to rubber stamp whatever. So (laughs) it's going to be up to the Democrats to educate the public fully about what's happened here. And of course, it just makes the court look like another political football. So it's, it's, uh, it's a moment of peril for the court. Uh, it's a, you know, if any, if it seems to me, if these nominees, if these potential nominees had any uh, self-respect and sense of the moment, they would be well advised to say, please don't consider me. This is not the right time to do this. But of course, nobody's going to do that. Um, so there, whoever gets the nomination and gets confirmed will come in, you know, with all this baggage also um, for having been a willing player in this truly atrocious uh, political hardball. So nobody's going to come out a winner in this. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, well, it sounds like you think it's very conceivable that there could be a 6-3 conservative majority in the court by election day. So now let's talk about the 2020 presidential election a bit. Um, you know, what are your nightmare scenarios surrounding this election? And how is the court going to be playing into this if there is a conservative majority or if there even is a 5-3 majority? Well, I lived through the Bush against Gore case in 2000 when the court, at the end of the day, basically awarded uh, Florida's dispositive electoral votes to George W. Bush. Um, That's going to look like child's play under some of these scenarios um, because the, the president has gone to great lengths to make people think that this election is going to be riddled with fraud. Uh, that absentee ballots are not basically going to be valid. Um, we mm-hmm. can go many days without knowing who the winner is in some states. And, uh, you know, we come to certain deadlines and either it goes into Congress um, or the court's dragged into it in some way to adjudicate the validity of an electoral outcome for electoral votes that are going to make the difference. Um, I don't know. I mean, we've all got our own nightmares, but I certainly think the court doesn't want to get into this. Um, It's not exactly salivating to get into this. Um, You know, I wish I could say 
if A, then B, and then B, then C, but, but we're just in unknown territory. We've never had a president that, that sought to sow doubts about the validity of an election that he has reason to think he's going to lose. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's, it's um, almost more than I can get my hands around, frankly, at this point. Yeah, fair. And I don't have much to say in response to that. It's, you know, it keeps me up at night thinking about what could happen in November. Well, November and December and January, I mean. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, we have no idea how long this is going to go on for. Yeah, which... I mean, Bush against Gore, that decision took place on December, I think it was 10th. So more than a yeah. month after the election, uh, we still yeah. didn't know who the president was going to be. Who knows how long it's going to take to count all of these mail-in ballots with what Trump is doing with the Postal Service. Well, at a certain point, under, under federal law, at a certain point, it goes, in, goes into Congress. But, um, but if certain state, if it's not clear who's actually won the electoral vote, I mean, say there's disputed contending states of uh, slates of electors in certain states, it's not clear mm-hmm. who would claim the legitimate representation in Congress to cast that state's vote. So it's many, many messes that one can envision. Yes, absolutely. Well, something I've heard a lot about recently is the idea of packing the court if Justice Ginsburg is replaced by a conservative justice and Democrats also um, take over Congress and sweep into the White House. And of course, this idea is really appealing just in the name of preserving landmark decisions like Roe v. Wade, but the precedent this might set is scary, to say the least. So could you offer some of your thoughts on this subject? Well, I certainly wouldn't blame the Democrats for doing it because there would be two stolen seats. There's the seat that Mitch McConnell stole from President Obama in refusing to even give Merrick Garland a vote in 2017. I mean, in 2016, rather. Um, And then there would be this seat, which should not be filled by the incumbent president 40 days before the election. Uh, Mm -hmm. So... You know, I certainly understand the impulse to say, okay, you took two seats from us and we're going to add two seats that we can fill. Um, it's, a, it's a leap into the unknown because uh, the pendulum does swing. And so when the Republicans, when their day comes again, uh, they're going to add two more seats. I mean, it's just hard to know when it's going to, how it's going to stop. Um So, you know, we're all just going to be along for that ride. But wow, it's really going to be something. Yeah, it feels like just a political death race to the very lowest common denominator in in some ways. Um, So, you know, assuming the Democrats don't pack the court and the conservatives are able to maintain a 6-3 majority, well, what happens to landmark decisions like Roe v. Wade? You know, we, we know where this has been trending. And uh, 
Republican presidents have, since the platform in 1980, run on a platform that commits them to appoint justices who, judges and justices who would overturn Roe. So 1980 to 2020, that's, you know, more than a generation has gone by uh, where that has not happened. So they've been playing a long game. Uh, and sure, that could happen. Um, all kinds of decisions that we've taken for granted could be overturned. Certainly affirmative action is gone. Uh, that's been hanging by the thread. Um, the First Amendment becomes ever more a tool of deregulation. The Second Amendment becomes ever more a tool of you know, guns, all kinds of guns in everybody's hand. Um, you know, you can just kind of go down the list. And, uh, we'll see what the public thinks about that. Well, the pulling apart of American society along political lines and individual lines is in a kind of a theme, I think, of this conversation. And Sometimes I can't help but get the feeling that my generation is coming of age in a new era of fracture and also hyper-partisanship. And so with that all in mind, are you optimistic about the future? And re regardless of your answer to that question, how can young people work to make this country a better place? And, you know, how can we honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg's efforts to create a more perfect union? Well, of course, every generation has its challenges. Mine graduated college into the Vietnam era and the era of, um, you know, riots in the cities and so on. It was a very grim time. Um, and this one is too. And I mean, one difference is uh, I couldn't vote until I was 21. <laughs> and then... Uh, there was a constitutional amendment, and now people can vote at 18, and I certainly hope they're going to vote. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that people can do. Uh, I heard a very um, striking lecture. I went to a conference in Jerusalem at uh, the end of 2019, and a very well-known Israeli political philosopher uh, gave a talk in which he said, democracy depends on three things. One, everybody votes. Two, we make policy by persuasion, not by force. And three, when the leader is voted out of office or the leader's term is up, the leader departs peacefully. Fingers crossed. So those three things, vote, no force, and leave. And... I don't take for granted any of those three things right now in the United States. So am I optimistic? I mean, I'm, I'm rendered a little bit optimistic by the activism that I see, um, both in the calls for, you know, social justice, racial justice, reckoning with the past. Uh, everything has come to the fore uh, since the murder of George Floyd, I think is, um, very significant and uh, has brought us to a 
deeper understanding of historic forces that have been running in your country. Um, so that's a new kind of opening. People that haven't felt included or haven't felt they've had a stake in electoral politics. I hope they now realize they do. So nothing's more important than I think just getting out the boat and having an informed, engaged electorate. Yeah. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed that we can get the vote out this November and that things ultimately work out in, you know, at least a somewhat reasonable way, right? Hope so. Yeah, really? let's hope so. Yeah. You, you and your cohort are going to have to uh, clean up our mess. So good luck to you all. Yeah, well, let's hope we don't leave one for the next generation, too. Uh, we'll see how things go. Um, well, uh, Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. It really does mean a lot. And to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time, everyone. Thank you, Ben. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.